been in Texas still. This is a new Bible. Look at how heavy this is. This is not going to stay there. Look at that. It's not going to work. I talked to Joel yesterday. He misses us all. He'll be back next week. And he is super grateful that such confident people can take care of the music while he is away. It's a huge blessing to know that somebody can fill in for you. So thank you, Kale. Thank you, Kevin. And Tina, good job. Amen. So as we progress now uh, through the Old Testament, we're taking a survey course in various verses in the Old Testament that describe the entire biblical story. So we've covered Genesis 3.15, we've covered Genesis 12.3, and now what we're going to cover is Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. And we will, in unfolding this verse, uh, unpack what the entire biblical story is. Remember, this whole series is not only to celebrate some things that we've perhaps forgotten, but it's also to instruct us in how to explain the gospel using any one of these individual verses. So before we open Exodus and consider a por portion of the scriptures that most of us do not read, <laughs> right? I love Exodus, right? Until they cross the Red Sea and then they go on to Deuteronomy. <laughs> before we do that, let's open, um, before we open the word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the Advent season to remember uh, the coming of Christ and all it meant to the people of God, all the hopes and aspirations, um, Lord, that filled uh, the minds and hearts of Israel. Lord, before the coming of Christ, we, we are here to celebrate, Lord, what Christ revealed to us about the Father, how he uh, fulfilled all the promises that he made to your people, Lord, uh, over millennia after millennia. We thank you, Lord, for giving us insight and understanding, for, uh, for giving us the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability, Lord, to comprehend just how wonderful and how magnificent the coming of Christ was. As we open the word in Exodus today, we thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Moses. We pray, Lord, that we would have insight and that we would not only understand this text better, that we would understand ourselves better, and ultimately that we would understand you. We thank you and we praise you and amen. Yeah, there was a there was a fantastic meme I just saw that's a, a van crossing over train tracks. And it says your year is a reading plan, you know, reading the year in a Bible plan. And then this train smashes into it the next day, and it's the book of Leviticus. <laughs> okay. Now, there's more to the story of Exodus than God delivering Israel from slavery. I know that that's what we think the whole book is about, right? It's called the Exodus, after all. And the Exodus is historically the event in which Jesus... Or I'm sorry, the Lord, Yahweh, throws down the Egyptian gods and delivers his people out of slavery. Okay, but the book doesn't end like the movie The Prince of Egypt, with Israel crossing on dry ground through the Red Sea. That's always the climax of the film. Right? Even the old version of the Ten Commandments, that's usually where the story ends. They come through on the dry ground and boom, they live happily ever after. That happens in actually uh, chapter 14. Okay, there are 26 more chapters in the book of Exodus. What in the world are they about? Right? They don't just go back and retell the same story. The majority of the book of Exodus occurs after they've made it through the Red Sea. Now, if we compare the beginning and the end of Exodus, we see how the whole story fits together. At the beginning of Exodus, the sons of Israel are slaves to a wicked and evil king. But at the very end of the book, the Lord takes his throne in the tabernacle as the king of Israel. It's yet another one of the Old Testament books that, in, in a sense, encapsulates the entire story. In the beginning, Israel is in slavery, and at the end, they're living amongst, right? The Lord God is living in their midst, and he is their king, and they're serving him and worshiping him alone. It, it's like a, a, 
microcosm of the whole biblical story. When the book begins, Pharaoh says that Israel belongs to him. But Yahweh demonstrates through a, a, a miraculous series of events that Israel, in fact, belongs to Yahweh. He declares it in Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Now, by the end of the book, Israel is serving Yahweh. It says in Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So by the end of the book, the Lord is living in their midst. They're no longer slaves. They're no longer in Egypt. They're, they're no longer in bondage. He's delivered them. Now, let's go back for a moment, and, and, and let's get some context for exactly what this deliverance for Israel means. Now, even as the era of the Noahic Covenant ended in the failure and rebellion of the Tower of Babel, which we considered last week, so too the era of the patriarchs ended with apostasy. And most of us missed this detail because it, it happens at the end of the book of Joshua, which again, that's another book. Usually you can make it through the first few chapters, but once they conquer the land and everybody starts getting, you know, a, a, a 40 acres and they start dividing it all up, most of us stop reading it. But at the end of the book of Joshua, in his last sermon, Joshua says this in 24:14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's essentially saying, put away the gods that you served when you were in Egypt. Because for those 400 years that they were, in, that they were there living in the land of Goshen, Israel had been serving and worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. So it's not as if they were, right? It's not as if their sin didn't find them out. It's not as if they were there and they were just victims. They were living in Egypt and they were dissuaded from the living God by the Egyptian God and were serving the Egyptian gods. And Joshua says, don't go back to that. Put that away. Leave that behind you. Now that we know the Lord, now that he has saved us, now that we are established in the land, put away the Egyptian gods. And you see as the story goes forth from there, as we see in Samuel, Israel always struggles to put away these foreign gods. Israel was enslaved in Egypt, not randomly, but because of their apostasy. Now that's something that we have to, have to keep in the forefront of our minds. Just like in the, the exile occurs because Israel falls into apostasy. Israel will go on throughout its history to worship false gods, and because of that, they'll be cast out. They'll be cast out, and it says later on, by the, by the latter prophets, that they, in a sense, return to Egypt. They return to their bondage. They return to their slavery. Now, God delivers Israel from slavery and leads her into the desert to serve him exclusively, and so Yahweh makes a covenant with her. This is the whole plan. He rescues Israel from Egypt, uh, they put away the foreign gods. He leads them into the desert so that they will worship and serve him and him alone. Okay, and, and so because that he's doing this, it's time that he makes a new covenant with them. And this is something we're going to see as a pattern of worship for the church. We go out from here and we, we break the covenant with God. Right? We hold the bread and wine at the end and say, this is the covenant in Christ's blood. This is the covenant in Christ's body. We're renewing this covenant. And we eat it and drink it and, we, and we, we return to the Lord. And then we go out from here and what happens to us? We fall away. Right? We, we wander off. We start worshiping other things. We start living in anxiety. We, we submit ourselves to slavery. And then we come back here each week and we renew covenant. 
This is the process that God always goes through. So when he leads Egypt out into the wilderness, he's leading her out there to renew covenant with her, to make a new covenant with her, founded on the covenant that he already had. Okay, no new covenant is totally void, right? Totally voids the previous covenant. Every covenant that God makes with his people is based on the previous covenants he has made. Okay, the law of Moses, the, the Mosaic covenant, is not opposed to the promises that God has already given them. What are the promises? Remember, Genesis 3.15, right? I, I will crush the head of the, Satan and I will deliver you from him. What was the promise made in Genesis 12.3? That God would, what, bless Abraham and his family and give him a nation and, and curse those who curse him and bless those who bless him and through him bless all the nations in the world. Now when he comes Yahweh and gets Moses and brings Israel out to the desert, he's not starting over. He's not nullifying the promises. What he's doing is he's advancing the promises. He, he, he's, he's renewing covenant in such a way as to extend and to bring about the very things that he's promised. Okay, this is what Paul explains in Galatians chapter 3. He says, The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, the reason I want to point this out is this, is that people think once you insert law into Christian, the Christian life, once they start talking about piety and ethics, Somehow we're no longer talking about promise and gospel, as if the two things are opposing them. But, but what we see in scripture, what Paul explains, is that the existence of law and ethics and piety does not void the promises made. It's how God accomplishes the promises. Okay? This is important to keep in, in, in our minds as we move forward, trying to figure out what in the world the rest of Exodus is about. Moses. Right? <laughs> he renews this covenant from Exodus, right? But after they make this covenant, the generation goes out, they fail to take the land, they all die in the desert. And then Moses has got to renew the covenant he already renewed. So Moses can't even die before they have to renew this thing again. But he, he says something interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 13. He says that God, God may establish you today as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God wants uh, Israel to obey the law because of what he promised, not because obeying the law is somehow the thing, right? They don't twist his arm and win him over because they're obedient. Imagine your own children. Do you love them because they're obedient? Right? Is all of your love and responsibility and your promises to them, is it based on the fact that they're obedient to you? No. But do you still expect them to be obedient to you? And I think we really struggle with this kind of thing. When we start talking about sort of Jesus and grace and the law, it's very confusing to us. But the law, right, the rules in my house that I give my children, you will obey these or I will punish you. The, the whole idea there is, is, is that this is the way that I, it's a mechanism for me to give them the very thing that I promised. Right? And that's very difficult for us to understand. Okay, the Mosaic Covenant, nor the law of Moses, annul the promises of God. They further Yahweh's plan to bless and redeem mankind, fulfilling those promises. Now think back to your own Christian life. Okay? When, when, if you were converted as an adult, what you remember and what you dealt with first was what? Promise or law? Promise. People explained the promises to me. Then I came to find out, unfortunately, that there's this law that I have to keep. 
<laughs> that was a hard day. I was like, wait, because he's done these things, I have to what now? I can't just live however I want. I can't just go on sinning so that grace may abound. Which once anyone ever makes that argument with you, you're in good company because that's the argument that Paul received in the middle of the Romans. The Mosaic Covenant, recorded in Exodus 20 to 24, begins a new cycle of covenants. God is not nullifying promises. He's progressing the whole narrative here. He's adding to what he's already done and what he's already said to extend the blessings that he's trying to give Israel. The Edemic Covenant was priestly. The Noahic Covenant was kingly. The Abrahamic Covenant was prophetic. And what did Israel do with those covenants? They failed as priests, they failed as kings, and they failed as prophets. And what I like about this is that God says, okay, good try. Now let's go back and do it all again. Let's make a new covenant now, and we'll start at the beginning. We'll make this one priestly one. And then he goes on from here, and he makes a prophetic one, and then he makes a new kingly one with David, and what does Israel continue to do? Well, the same thing that she has always done. But you see that there are these similarities in the covenants, and God is always expanding on what he's already done. It's very important for us to understand this. This new cycle begins with the Mosaic Covenant, the new priestly covenant, that bestows greater grace than had been seen in any of the previous covenants. In none of the other covenants, not with Noah or Abraham, did God say, I will come and live with you. And right in the garden, who walked with Adam in the pool of the day? The Lord. And now he's saying, listen, Moses, get everybody together, get the whole gang together, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to promise to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to come and I'm going to live with you. And, and those people paying attention were like, wow, nope, this hasn't happened since the days of the garden. This is like the this is greater grace than he even showed Abraham. A new sanctuary with limited access is the essence of the grace of God granted in the Mosaic Law. That, that's what's at the heart and center of it. He has the Levitical priests, he has the Levites, he has a tabernacle, a tent, but he too may dwell with Israel. And that is what is at the heart and center of this new covenant. Now, the covenant of Yahweh with Israel, this new one, is, it, it takes place in Exodus chapter 20 to 24. And if you want to understand your relationship with Christ, if you want to understand our relationship as a whole to God, we have to understand Exodus chapter 20 to 24. The covenant law is given in Exodus 20, but it begins with a preamble. It begins with an, an indicative. It begins with a statement of fact and authority. A statement of what Yahweh has done, establishing the law and Israel's responsibility. God doesn't just come out and say, listen, here's, here's the Ten Commandments. When we ever see a list of Ten Commandments, what does it usually have? It just says the first commandment, now do the Ten. Almost everybody leaves off in those cute little kitty posters the, the actual preamble of the, of, of the Ten Commandments that actually sets the tone of the whole thing. And without the preamble, this is why most of us don't understand the law of God. This is why we don't understand the law of Moses, because we forget this most important fact. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, this is what it says. I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before he says anything about what he's expecting from us, what he's expecting from Israel, he begins with what he himself has done for Israel. Right? Before we can understand what we, the imperatives, we have to understand the indicatives. Paul did the same thing in the book of Ephesians. The first half of the book of Ephesians is just prompt, like, God did this, 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 and this. And then he says, okay, now that we firmly established that this is not works righteousness, the second half of Ephesians, he says, okay, here's all the stuff you're supposed to do. 
Well, this is the way God always does it. We can't do anything unless we first know what God has done for us. Once we know what he's done for us, then we can start talking about what we're supposed to do. The preamble, the portion of a covenant identifying the parties, occurs in the first clause. It identifies Israel as the recipient. He says, you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay, and this is the second person singular pronoun. Okay, second person singular pronoun. But he's talking to over a million people. Okay, Yahweh is not addressing a single man. He's no longer addressing a man. He's no longer addressing a tribe. He's no longer addressing an individual. He is addressing a people. Now think, is this already a greater covenant than the ones that came before? Because he's promising something to a million people. That's a lot of people. Yahweh is not addressing a single man. He is addressing the people of Israel. The Lord your God is identified as the giver of this covenant. He says, the Lord, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, what is, what, what is the Lord? Right? This is where we get the, the, the idea of Yahweh. He says uh, to Moses, I am that I am. And this is a word that we use to describe who God is. He is who he is. He is the Lord. There is no one higher than him. There is no one stronger than him. There is no one more gracious than him. Yahweh is the name by which God identified himself when he first revealed himself to Israel at the burning bush. Now, in the New Testament, the word Kyrios in Greek, the name Jesus attributes to himself as the head of the new covenant, is the same word. Jesus says of himself, and this is actually why they killed him. This is how they killed him, and in the first century, when the church was uh, living in catacombs, this is why they killed us. This is the claim that we make about Jesus that sets us apart from every other group of people in the world. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 8, verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And everybody flips out. In the book of John, he does this several times. I love it. When they come to arrest them, this is my favorite one, and, and they don't really explain it. John doesn't explain it. But they come and they say, are you Jesus? Right? Who, we're looking for Jesus. And he stands up and he says, I am. And all of the Romans fall back on the ground. The soldiers fall on the ground. Simply because he has said the sacred name of Yahweh. The sacred name Yahweh. He said the sacred name. Jesus said it out loud and you're not supposed to do that. That's a big time no-no. In fact, you get the word Jehovah because... Jews would refuse to say this word because you say this word will stone you to death. It's the name of God, you don't say it. Not, not only do you not say it, you certainly don't call yourself by that. And Jesus stands up and says, I am Yahweh. He says, I am. He calls himself the sacred name. Now the fundamental confession of faith in both the Old and the New Testament is that God is Lord. Okay? If, if, if you want to go out and you want to make a statement in this world, the kingdom of God, Argue for the crown rights of Christ. This, this will always get you in trouble. This is the right kind of trouble. This is the kind of trouble we say, listen, you may have your kings, you may have your princes and senates and guys that wear black robes and people that wear funny hats, right? You got the Pope, fine, great. Christ is Lord. All of them serve Christ. This is the argument that the Bible is making, and you either believe it or you don't. This defines who's who. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yeah. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What we're talking about is the very heart of the gospel. What we're talking about is the very heart of the biblical message. 
Jesus' lordship fulfills the promise to Abraham and to bless every nation. This is what we have. When he stands up and says, I am the Lord, he's demonstrating to us that he's fulfilling all of these other promises that we've been talking about. It says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Right? God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless every nation through you. How, you, how is the question? Well, how is by everyone say, standing up and saying, Jesus is Lord. Right? That is how the nations come in. Jesus' lordship accomplished is accomplished by the bruised head pressure promised to Eve, right? We see these promises come together. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in blood and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So Jesus comes, he crushes the head of Satan, and what does he become? What does God bestow upon him because he has accomplished the promises that, right, the Father in heaven wrote the check. And Jesus goes out and makes sure it clears. And because of this, God the Father says, this is now the Lord. Every knee bow, everyone confess, he is in fact the man. There's no other. Right? So if you go back to Exodus, it's the Lord who is, he's saying, I am the Lord. Later, this is who Jesus is saying he is. Jesus is saying, I was the one who stood up in Exodus and said to you, I delivered you out of Egypt. No wonder they wanted to kill him. <laughs> no wonder. Now, it's very important for us to understand why God does the things he does. Why does he do that? Right? Why does he create the world? Why does he save them from Egypt? Why does he come and save pathetic little Gentiles like ourselves? Why does he do these things? Why does he do the mighty works that he does? It's so that we will know that he is the Lord. That's what he wants. He wants you to know that he is the Lord, and so he works and moves and acts in this world. He says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They're going to know who I am. The Lord declares in Jeremiah 16, 21, Therefore, behold, I will make them know. This once I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. And then Jesus comes and says, That's who he is. I'm that guy. Right? That, that being that you are worshiping, that being who came and did all these things in the Old Testament, so that you would know that he is the Lord, that is me. I hear you. <laughs> Starting to know what the Lord God has done. Jesus also does his works in order that we know that he is in fact who he says he is. John 13, 12 through 16. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed the place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If, if, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So what Jesus is essentially saying is, I am the one who has now come and washed your feet. Therefore, go and wash your feet. It's exactly the same idea as Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. 
I'm the one who saved you from Egypt, therefore go and be free. I'm the one that has delivered you, I'm the one, so go and be people who are delivered. Jesus says, I'm the one who's come and served. I'm the one who's come and washed feet. Therefore, go and be the kind of people who serve and wash feet. God is Lord is the message of the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is Lord is the message of the New. Okay, now, after that massive Fourier into uh, theology, let's return to Exodus 20, verse 2 for a moment. Okay, and we see the fact that this lordship idea, this, this the identity of God the Father, as he, Yahweh, when he comes and he's talking to Israel, it, it is the basis on which he says everything to them, about everything he expects from them. It explains how the two parties came to be related. How did the Lord, who sits in the heavens, come to be associated with a lowly band of slaves who are living in the land of Goshen and Egypt? By reason of having rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, Yahweh claims his chosen people. Such a claim is sometimes called a yesed relationship. It's a Hebrew concept, meaning loyalty required and response to the loyalty shown. Now this is where we get into the really practical theology. Loyalty required in response to loyalty shown. Okay? It, it doesn't say, show me loyalty so I will show you loyalty. God always says, I have shown you loyalty, thus show me loyalty. This is what he is always preaching. This is what he is always teaching, and this is what the household of God ought to always preach and teach. In Exodus chapter 20 through 23, the Lord tells Israel how they are to live because of the Exodus. God says, because I have saved you from Egypt, you should live like people who were saved from Egypt. This is the gospel message of Paul. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul, like Moses, teaches that if you are free, then you should live like people who are dead to sin and alive to Christ. People who are free. Not because you earn his loyalty, but because of the loyalty he's already shown. Romans chapter 6, and this is lengthy, but just listen to this. This is what is required of Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we had died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, are you alive to sin or alive for the righteousness of Christ? Are you, right? are you here to be slaves? Are you here 
to be enslaved to sin and Satan and death. Or, because he has set you free, ought you to live like free people? Because you have died in him to sin, should you be people who have died to sin? What God has done for us is the business of what he commands us to do. He says, I have freed you for freedom, so be free. This is, the, this is why the law of Moses is not what people say it is. We slander it. We slander it. I, I, I don't require some liberal Christian to slander it. I don't, it doesn't even, we don't even need a secularist to come in here and slander it. We slander it. The law of Moses is the law of liberty. The law of Moses is the law of love. And Christ proved and, and the fact that we don't think that it is, that we don't have, we have so much trouble with it, demonstrates that we don't understand what we are talking about. The law of Moses is a law of liberty. The law of Moses is a law of love. Paul says that in Christ you have died to sin. So put it to death. Put sin to death. What God has done is a claim on us as his beloved. And so we must lay claim to all which that entails. The Lord's command is be the kind of people that the Lord has made you. Live up to who you are. And, and if you want to encourage one another, if you want to encourage your spouse and your children, if you want to encourage your fellow Christians, this, this is what you tell them. Look, it doesn't matter what you've done. What matters is what he's done. Therefore, put this to death. Put this sin away. Put this argument away. Put this envy away. Put the lust away. Put it away and be who you are. Right? Now, that's a different way of counseling people than what in the hell is the matter with you. Which, trust me, I, I say myself sometimes. What is wrong with you? That is what we typically address each other with. But how do we address it like this? You know, you know the indicative. You know what Jesus has done. Therefore, now let's go and let's be who he has made us. The Bible's argument is that if person A voluntarily rescues person B, then person B has a true and lasting moral obligation to person A. One could not simply ignore significant good done on one's behalf by another. The doing of that good creates an inescapable relationship of loyalty to one's benefactor, a sort of permanent gratitude writ large. The Midrash, the Jewish commentary, comments on Exodus 20 or 2 in this way, and this is very helpful. It, it sounds like the kind of parable. A king who entered a province said to the people, May I be your king? But the people said to him, Have you done anything good for us that you should rule over us? What did he do then? Well, he built a city wall for them. He brought in the water supply for them. He fought their battles. Then when he said to them, May I be your king? They said to him, Yes, yes. Likewise, God, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, divided the sea for them, sent down the manna for them, brought up the wall for them, brought the quails for them. He fought for them the battle with Amalek. Then he said to them, I'm to be your king. And they said to him, yes, yes. So when we go door to door, when we go and we're trying to convince people, right, of the truth of the gospel, how about we try just telling them what the Lord has done for them? Right? Because you go and you're like, well, you need a savior. You're like, well, what's he done for me lately? Right? They have no concept of their need. They have no concept of what he's accomplished. But when people know what other people have done for them, right, now they are more willing to listen. Oh, yeah, I want that kind of guy to be king. Right? And this is what the Lord is always trying to He's trying to get us to understand who he is. Because if we understood who he is, then we would willingly follow him. And this is the key. This is the key to evangelism. 
God in love reaches towards us, and therefore we respond in love, reaching back. 1 John 14. We love because he first loved us. Now, according to Luther, the commandment calls us to faith to the one who was faithful. Moses' covenant begins with a brief summary of the Exodus, and that narrative snippet frames the entire law. Israel has been freed, so they are to live as a free people. They have undergone an exodus, and so are to live as an exodus people. The same is true for us. We are redeemed, and thus must live as a redeemed people. One of the things Moses is always telling is like, hey, remember the fact that you were a sojourner in Egypt. Therefore, remember sojourners who are in Israel. Right? If, if you needed deliverance. You needed someone to come and rescue you from that evil uh, king, that evil society. And what do you think these people need? Don't you remember what you were before? We are redeemed and must live as a redeemed people. All right, so now this is this not yet answered the question. What in the world is the rest of Exodus about? Okay, the Lord saved Israel. The Lord wants them to know he's the Lord. He's brought them out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> to make a covenant of all things with them. And, and, and what I want to, I have a question that helps us understand the answer. Later on, when all the prophets are referring to Israel as a whole, as, as a wayward wife. And God himself is like, listen, you were mine, but you're not mine now. Right? You, you wandered off from me. Have you ever wondered, when in the world did God marry them? When did God get pitched? Well, in Exodus 20, it, it is a destination. Right? That is what the story is about. He, he went and captured, right, recaptured his beautiful bride. and was like, you know what, let's go somewhere sunny with, with, a, with sand. You don't really like the ocean. Which is a whole argument I make separately. God likes the land. Like, let's go out in the middle of the desert and let's get married there because that seems like a nice place. And, and, and later, when he's referring to his bride, what he's referring back to is this, this moment in the desert, in Exodus 20 to 24, when God married Israel. It's, not, it's one of those things. I, I, for me, it's like Paul you know, in, in Ephesians and Galatians, he's talking about the bride of Christ and stuff, and I think. You know, he was searching around for a helpful metaphor. He's like, yeah, yeah, marriage works. But what we don't understand is that this was the central idea all along. God actually, right, it's not a metaphor. He actually took Israel and married her. This lordship, this said covenanted relationship of God and Israel is called a marriage. Now, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, God, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Have you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown? So right there, they're describing, when did the wedding happen? Well, it happened when you followed me into the desert. Ezekiel 16.8 When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. The wedding service is recorded in Exodus chapter 20 to 24. Moses is the minister officiating the wedding. Now that's a funny idea, I think, for most of us. But it actually unites him to the office of the apostles. Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 11, 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So Paul considered his job as the one going around making the proposal pitch to, to people to come and join the bride of Christ. 
friend, listen, there, there is this person who will treat you as the beloved in a way that you can hardly understand. Come, and he went to him. Come, and join him. Come into his house. And you will have a lord, a, a husband, who, who is unlike anything in this world. And, and like, that is how Paul would go around evangelizing. And that's how he would describe his own evangelism. And, and this is what the prophets and, and the apostles, this is what they were. They were the people mediating between the Lord and his bride. Moses goes up on the mountain to hear the Lord's proposal and then brings it back down to the people. The husband's part of the wedding service begins with the Lord reminding his bride of what he has done for her in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. Then Yahweh tells Israel how they are to live as his whole people, his bride, in the remainder of chapter 20 until the end of 23. Okay, let's make vows to one another. I'm going to tell you what I've done. Right? Now what I want you to know is if you're going to be my bride, there are certain expectations. Now, does anyone think that's unreasonable? No. Okay? The husband initiates, and then what he says is, listen, we're going to now make vows to one another about exactly the kind of relationship we're going to have. And when Moses comes to bring the bride forward, making Yahweh's intentions known, repeating Yahweh's words to them, literally Israel says, I do. And, and this is, I love this one. Exodus 24, verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We do. And Moses said, I now pronounce you as living Through a wedding, a man and woman are bound together as husband and wife. Each of them takes a vow promising to do certain things. The man promises to love and care for life and provide for her. The woman vows to obey and support her husband. If they don't keep these vows, the marriage will end in divorce. What the man and woman are doing is making a covenant with one another. The wedding ceremony ends with a wedding reception, of course. When Yahweh marries his bride, he's not just going to say, okay, fine, let's all go about our way. They're going to sit down, they're going to have a meal together, they're going to have a party. Exodus 24, verse 9 to 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was, under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They ascended the mountain, the representatives of Israel. They can't all go up there, there's a building. And this is where you get representative government. They go up representing Israel and they eat and see God face to face. Now that Yahweh and Israel are married, Yahweh decides to move in with his bride. That's why he says, let's make me a house so I can come and I can live with you because now you're my bride. The rest of Exodus, chapters 25 and 40, are about the kind of house Yahweh wants his bride to build for him, using the materials that he provided when they plundered the Egyptians. Right? So as you go on, he gives instructions. He says, listen, this is the kind of house I want. And his bride faithfully goes along, making the, house, the kind of house that he wants. And where do they get all the stuff to do it? Well, when they were leaving Egypt, all the Egyptians gave them all this swag, and all that swag is what they then gave to the Levites and the priests in order to make the house for God. Right? So just like a man goes out and, and, gets, and gets everything that a, a wife needs in order to have a home, she then builds the home based on his desires, his likes, his, the culture that they are establishing together. And that is actually what the Book of Exodus is about. Right? It's the honeymoon phase of Yahweh and his bride Israel. Behold the original paper. Amen. Now this Yesed relationship, this marriage, becomes the central description of Yahweh's relationship with Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. 
Yahweh promises to provide all good things for his bride and his people take an oath to obey and honor him. God is in covenant with Israel, a marital relationship that includes promises, laws, and the threat of curses. Israel's new master is her husband, bound to her by a covenant. The theme of Israel's description, or, the theme of Israel's desertion of her husband, Yahweh, is explicitly treated in Ezekiel 16. That's actually what the whole thing is about. Ezekiel 16 is saying, remember the love we had in the beginning, and you've now gone astray. For Israel, idolatry is adultery. This is, this is another theme in the Bible that we have to kind of understand. If she is, in fact, the bride of God, Yahweh, when she commits idolatry, she's committing adultery. And, and this helps us understand these descriptions that the Bible uses. This is what it says in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 17 to 19. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself images of men and with them placed before. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you fine flour and oil and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, the place of the Lord God. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the end of every street, making your lofty um, place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment, adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. And, and I've always wondered, where in the world does he get off talking to Israel in this weird way? Well, it's because... He went and he rescued her. He saw her covered in blood. And he, she, he saw that she was beautiful and took her, as, took her as his bride and cleansed her. And you look through the whole history, what did he do? What did he cover the temple with? What did he fill David's pockets with? What did he fill Solomon's pockets with? What did he build right, with this beautiful bride? He built a beautiful kingdom. And all of those things that he provided for Israel, she uses throughout her history to commit idolatry which in the end is adultery. So the lot of prophets come and they say, listen, listen, we're lawyers, we're here to represent your husband, okay? You cross the line, okay, it's a no-fault state. <laughs> it is a fault state. And now you're at fault, and he's going to, he wants a divorce. So if you ever want to, <laughs> we don't understand the God of the Old Testament. He's a divorcee, he's a divorcee. And all along, he's trying to win his bride back, and trying to win his bride back, and trying to win his bride back. And finally, he sends the Latin prophets to listen, I'm done with them. We read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8 to 10. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her boredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. The latter prophets are prosecutors, as we can see, executing a written divorce against the adulterous Israel. But the prophet Hosea was given a vision of the future day when God would betroth his people to him forever. And, and this again, demonstrates. This is why when I'm talking to husbands and wives who even have split, I'm like, listen, even if you're already divorced, we're still going to pursue this thing. Because this is what God did. Even though he had to divorce Israel because the relationship was toxic at that point, he wasn't done with her. Hosea, in chapter 2, verse 19, says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Hosea 2.20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. 
Remember, why does he do what he does? He does what he does so that we would know that he is the Lord. So he will pursue his whorish wife that he's already given a written divorce to. He will continue to pursue her to bring her back so that what? She will know that he is the Lord. That vision, right? This is, what Paul, this is why Paul is so excited. He says, Look, I betrothed you to him. I betrothed you to him. You don't understand the relationship that you have. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He was the faithful husband. And the Lord Jesus is like, listen, okay, if you... You guys, this is a toxic relationship. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to come down there and I'm going to make sure that we are betrothed together and that nothing will ever separate us. Right? What, what, what was Kevin talking about? Nothing will separate us from his love. Why? Because he wanted us as his bride so badly, he would ignore it, Right? He would put away all the things that we had already done as Israel in the Old Testament and he would deal with whatever stands in our way now. Jesus is Yahweh. And Yahweh's bride is Israel. And so new Israel is Christ's bride. He makes this claim known to us so that we may be claimed by it. And that we might know that he is in fact the Lord. Right? <laughs> this faithless world in which we live. What kind of man pursues Israel? A woman like Israel. What kind of man does that? No man that I know would continue to pursue a woman like Israel. And yet the Lord Jesus does it. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And why does he do this? His claim on us obligates us to live a certain way. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And his claim on us, his bride, requires that we build him a house out of what he has provided Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, are we going to continue to, to, to pursue him? Are we going to continue to obey him? Because, because we... What's that magnificent? Because, because of what we are doing... He's with us to the end of the age. He is with us. Therefore, we go out and what do we do? We build the home that he wants. And what kind of home does he want? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 to 22. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So just like in Exodus, he marries Israel and moves in with her and, 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 and teaches her how to build the kind of home, the kind of culture he wants, the Lord Jesus has taken us as a bride. He's brought us into the household of God. 
right? And he's with us forever. We, we cannot be separated from him. There is no divorce at this point. We, right? we can't leave this relationship no matter how toxic we are. And what does he expect of us? Right? To earn something? Or to simply live right? as he has lived with us? If, if you have, those of you who are married have a spouse. On one level, isn't it, aren't you just expecting them to live with you when you're living with them? Right? I mean, sometimes it looks, let's live together here with, with a certain amount of expectation that, that we're on the same team. That we're here and we're together. Right? Nobody, how many of us, how long does your marriage last in a happy way? Where you're making all these extreme, outrageous uh, requirements of everything. Well, you know, I'm just going to sit here on the couch and you're going to do everything for me. Right? Or no, I'm going to spend all the money on whatever. Right? Nobody can live that way. And so why do we expect God right, to be this faithful Lord and we can live however we want? It doesn't really matter. I mean, right? Mike said you can't, can't get out of now. <laughs> now, just like in Exodus 24, where it ended in a wedding reception, which is partially why I like Because when we're doing a wedding reception, what we're really talking about is unity. What we're really participating in is the story that's being told between God and his people. Because Jesus, of course, sits down and has a wedding reception with his people. Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for me for the forgiveness of sins. Communion is the wedding reception of Christ and his bride. The Lord shows his works that we might sit at his table with him and be fed by him and, be, and have him as our Lord who provides for us. Psalm 81.10, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. This is what he says to his disciples. Go and feed my sheep. Go and feed my bride. Call my bride in, into my house, that we might sit down together and that I might fill her mouth. This is what the Lord Jesus does at his coming. John 6, 32-33. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Does anyone need life? Does anyone want their mouth filled with life? Do anyone want their heart filled with life? Does anyone want their life filled with life? You're not going to find it anywhere else. There is only one faithful husband. There is only one faithful Lord, and his name is Jesus. The Apostle Paul says in chapter 10 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And here we go. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of Jesus. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of Jesus. Now, if, you, if, if we really understood the table that we were sitting down on, would we want to go and pursue the table of demons? Right? So, is the problem him? Is the problem what he's failed to do somehow? Are we earning anything? No. This, we have to understand who he is and what he's done. And therefore, right, what, what happens? We want to be with him. Right? When I, when, when I remember back in the day when I was pursuing my wife, and I was beginning to wane just a little bit. It's a long story. 
suddenly she wanted to be with me. And that was transformative for me. I want to be with the person who wants to be with me. I knew a lot of people who did not want to be with me. <laughs> when, when someone wants to be with you, it changes you, doesn't it? And even now, whenever we're going, whenever we're going through a really tough time, there's this phrase that we use that like, I still wouldn't rather be with anyone else. And, and, and think, right? And think, what the, the, the nonsense that we do to one another in this world is silly. Think of what the Lord Jesus is saying. Think of how he badly he wants you to know that he is the Lord, that he is trustworthy, that he is here to provide everything that you could possibly need. Exodus 20, we see the shape that God's redemption of mankind is going to ultimately have. A wedding ceremony that includes a reception. All the types and shadows will be made brighter than the noonday sun at the second advent of the Son of Righteousness, right? Because everything I've already said is the first advent of Jesus Christ. What is the second advent of Jesus Christ like? Well, given everything we know now, what else could it be but this? Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, if you welcome Abraham, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself free. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints, and the angels said to me, Righteous. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a dark world. Full of dark people. We are a faithless bride. And what is it that the Lord never tires of calling us to? To sit at his table and be his beloved. And have our mouths filled by his grace and his goodness. And what we have to understand is that, that, that is what we are doing. That's what we're doing every week. What is here set before us? Every single week. God says, listen, I will not depart from you. Come here every week, and every week I will renew the covenant, and I will say the same promises, and I will establish it again by the blood and body of myself. Don't go looking for another husband. Don't go looking for another Lord. Don't go looking for another table. This is the table. And, and all of those people out there, invite them to this to this table. It's not just about you. It's a it's the house that God is expecting His bride to build. We proclaim every time we eat at His table what Christ has done for us, what He's going to do for us. First Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink it, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So we live in this time between the two advents, the first advent of the Lord Jesus and the second advent of the Lord Jesus. And what are we declaring as a people, as bride, every week? We are declaring the advents of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in this in-between time where we're saying, listen, the world, listen, listen what he already did. Listen to what he will do. Come and join us. This is where life is. This is where your mouth will be full. This is where blessing is. This is where love is found. This is where your heart will be filled. Because our hearts are restless until, what, they rest in Him. What we are inviting people to is not a list of rules. What we're inviting people to is not a, oh, you better watch out because you're going to be damned to hell. What we're inviting people to is to sit at the Lord's table and to know that He is the Lord. To know what He has already done and what He will do. 
This table is Jesus' Exodus 22 parable, or preamble, I'm sorry. It's Exodus 20, verse 2, preamble. We are here to renew covenant with him, to remember what it is that he has done, the indicative upon which the inheritance are based. We declare the first advent of Jesus, the Christ, and the second advent of Jesus, the Christ. How his love fulfills the promises of God and makes a claim upon us to live a certain way as his bride, building his house. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your wedding feast. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you're, you're giving us a deeper understanding of who you are as our Lord and what you've accomplished for us, Lord, that claim that you have made upon us and, and all that it requires of us. I pray that as we go from here, Lord, we both rejoice in what's been given to us and that we would indeed proclaim and invite um, all the people in this that we know, all the people that are out there who are hurting and broken, who do not know that you are the Lord, that we would claim what you have done so they would know that you are the Lord. And we would invite people to this feast, Lord, that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Amen.